First Peter is a book about the Christian's life as a pilgrim living in this world but not of this world and part of that pilgrimage is the experience of suffering and I would say a climactic point is made then in this chapter especially in verses 6 and 7 which we'll be making much of in the sermon this morning but we read it in its context beginning at verse 1 1 Peter 5 the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. On the basis of that, Scripture and others in the Word of God will consider the instruction of Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're still working through the articles of the Apostles' Creed, and we're still under the heading of God the Father. So this is an aspect of our confession when we say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, an aspect of that confession is our belief in the providence of God. And so, question 27 asks, What dost thou mean by the providence of God? The answer, The Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, Riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by His providence doth still uphold all things, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing 
shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is easy to say that we believe that God is our Father. It takes about five seconds to make that confession every Sunday evening in the Apostles' Creed. It's a bit more challenging, perhaps, to understand what it means that God is an eternal Father who created all things and upholds them in His providence. And yet the challenge in this case is mostly intellectual as our minds have to grapple with these deep and big concepts. But do you believe that God is your Father? That's more difficult It's more difficult because if you believe that God is your Father, then you believe the truth of what this Lord's Day is telling us. And this Lord's Day is telling us that when we have prosperity, that has nothing to do with our brilliance. It has nothing to do with our work ethic. And that we would be fools if we were to become proud in our riches or to boast of our greatness because prosperity is only ever a gift from God for which we must give thanks and which at any moment could be taken away from us. And this Lord's Day tells us that when we suffer trouble and adversity, that this was not just some random accident. Neither was it only the work of the devil or some other evil person whom we can demonize as an enemy, but God sent it. On purpose. And he sent it, no matter what kind of trouble it is, with the love of a father. So that we must be patient with it. You say you love God. You say that you know Him as the sovereign maker of heaven and earth and the ruler of all things. But do you believe in the Father's care for you? That's the theme for the sermon this morning, believing in the Father's care. First, we will notice that this is a care that God has for all things. Secondly, that it is a care specifically that has His children as its object. And then finally, that this is a care to rest in, a care to believe in. Believing in the Father's care, first care for all things, second care for His children, third care to rest in. Providence. 
Providence is simply a way to talk about God's care for all of His creatures in His creation. It is, unfortunately, one of those theological terms that can too easily be gutted of its meaning. We even joke about it sometimes. We say that we are not like those pagans who believe in luck, and we correct people who speak of luck. We say, we're reformed. That means we believe in providence. Providence. But then the weather changes in a way that we don't like. It becomes too hot, too humid. Then it becomes too cold. We watch as wildfires rage in a place far away from us. We hear about tornadoes racing through some part of the world. And we live in the terror that one day, somehow, some way, a disaster like that is going to come for me. And it will be my house that's blown to pieces. And it will be my loved ones who are killed. And we become anxious and we become afraid. And we're constantly thinking about tomorrow as if these are all just chance happenings. As if there is no God in heaven who directs all things and who cares for his creatures. We speak of providence, but too often the providence we speak of is just an idea to us and there's no God in it. But the truth about providence is that this is just a word by which we speak of God himself. That's what providence is according to the Lord's day. It's the power of God. The almighty, everywhere present power of God. Providence is the very same power that carved the mountains out of stone and built the earth's foundations. It is the very same power that gave life and existence to birds and plants and beasts It's the very same power that formed Adam out of the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. That power is not sitting off somewhere on an island doing other things, but that power continues to be at work in the creation all day, every day, sending hot and humid weather one day and then cold weather another day, sending a wildfire over here in this part of the world and a tornado over here in this part of the world. Herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. That's the power of God. But it's not just His power, as in brute, raw power. But it's His hand, the Lord today says. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures. His hand. Think about that. There's nothing abstract, impersonal, or generic about a hand. If there is a hand, that means that there is a mind. Moving that hand, controlling that hand, directing that hand. 
If there is a hand, that means that there is intentionality in everything that that hand does. That's why God gave you hands, children. He gave you hands so that you can do things on purpose. Did you look at all the other creatures in the world? None of them have a hand like you do. None of them have a hand that can grip a scissors and cut down a dotted line. None of them certainly have a hand that can hold on to a pen or pencil and write out words and ideas, write out a story. Well, your hands are just copies. God has the original hand, the hand, the hand that sometimes gives and the hand that other times takes away. The hand that sometimes builds up new and glorious things and other times tears them down. It's a mighty hand. Peter speaks of the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Which leads us to the most important thing to understand about providence, which is that is simply a way to speak of the continuing presence of God in all things. God is not far away and remote. He's here, beloved. He's not on an island somewhere, not paying attention to His creatures. He's here. He's right here among us. He's so close to us all that we cannot even lift a finger apart from His will. The Scripture says in Acts 17, verse 28, that it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. For He is not far from every one of us. Let that sink in. When you speak of providence, you're not just speaking of an idea. You're speaking of God. God's presence, His power, His hand. Himself. What does He do with this power? The Lord's Day says He upholds and He governs all things. To uphold, that gets at one of the deepest and most perplexing questions that you you can ever ask about our environment or the world around us. Why does everything that we see around us not collapse? Why does it not go back into the void, into the nothing from which it came? Where are the limits of the universe? People much more intelligent than me and you have looked far out into space, so far out into space through their modern equipment as to defy our imagination. And they have looked deep down into the cells and into the molecules of creation, looking so deep down that It's beyond the sight even of a regular microscope. You have to use special instruments just to detect these tiny little pieces moving about at the foundation of being. And every time they've looked deeper and deeper into space, and every time they've looked further and further down into the earth, all it has done is raised more questions. More questions. More questions. Where are the limits? Where is the edge of being? 
microscope will not get you there. Neither will the cleverest theory in physics out of the brain of the most intelligent scientist in the world today. For at the edge of the universe, there is only a mysterious deepness that man can never penetrate. And that mysterious deepness is God himself, who is always there, always there at the edge of all things, upholding holding it up so that it does not collapse and fall away into the void. If at any moment He were to withdraw His presence, it would all disappear. It would be gone in a second. But God is not content merely to uphold all things. What the Lord's Day says on the basis of Scripture, He also governs it. He governs it. He rules. And that too is the power of providence, the almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby He upholds and governs all things. There are some who will admit that there is a divine power of some sort that exists and that makes sure that all things continue to exist and is out there beyond the observable things that human science can penetrate into them into. But to those people, this is just a nameless power. It's a mindless power. It's a power with no purpose other than to be. But that's not the providence of God. That has nothing to do with the providence of God. With His almighty hand, the hand that carries out the will of His divine mind, He governs. He rules over His creation to accomplish His purpose. Due to the nature of providence then, as the everywhere present and almighty power of God whereby He upholds and governs all things, we have to see that this care of God the Father is a care that extends over everything. Its scope is as vast as the world itself. There is nothing that does not fall under the umbrella of the providence of God. Nothing. Maybe you've heard that old foolish question. If a tree falls down in the middle of the woods and there is no person there to hear it, does it make a sound? The answer is that the question itself is absurd. There will always be someone to hear it. Even if there is no man or beast, even if there is no bug crawling on the ground, there will always be someone to hear it because there is always the one there who created the tree and who gave life to the tree, and who caused it to continue to exist for all its long years, and then determined that at the exact moment that it fell, that it would fall crashing to the ground, and that it would lay there, rotting and decomposing into the earth. Psalm 94, verse 9 says, He that planted the ear shall he not hear? He that formed the eye shall he not see? From the most impressive to the most 
seemingly to us innocuous and inconsequential of events, God is there. He's there in all the fullness of His being. He's there upholding. He's there governing so that nothing, not even a tree falling down in the uninhabited wilderness far from the farthest person on the earth does not happen apart from His knowledge and apart from His will. Go down deep into the inner workings of the human cell. There you will find all of these tiny moving parts smaller than your eye can see. Constantly dying and constantly reproducing all kinds of activity like billions and billions of tiny little worker bees always working in your body at the cellular and molecular level. And you don't ever pay any attention to them because you're living up here on this level, the level that we can see, the level that we experience. You don't think of all of the different parts and all of the different activity that's constantly going on in order to ensure that your life continues until one of those cells starts to go haywire and produces a cell that wasn't supposed to be there. And then another one, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. And soon there's a mass growing. Where before there was only healthy tissue. Did any of that, from the years of healthy life in which those cells continued normally, the way that they're supposed to function, until the moment when everything went off the rails and a cancerous tumor began to develop, did any of that, any of it at all, happen randomly? Did any of that happen apart from the knowledge and the will of Almighty God? No. The psalmist says of God, In Psalm 139, you compass my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, Lord, but you know it all together. You beset me behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Beloved, we live in a world that wants nothing to do with this. We live in a world where men take refuge in randomness and chance and emptiness. Let my life have no purpose, they say. Let it be just a moment. Let it be just a cosmic accident. So long as God's hand is far from me. And in a world like that, we cannot make this point strongly enough to ourselves and to our children. The providence of God. The almighty and everywhere present power of God whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs all things is comprehensive. You live every day, beloved, in the palm of His hand. And that's true whether you believe in Him or not. That's true whether you see Him as the fount of all blessedness and the only good God or whether you view Him as some sort of monster. It's in Him that we live and move and have our being and nowhere else. Nowhere else. Nothing comes by chance. Nothing 
Nothing is random. That includes the actions and inactions of human beings. There's not a thought in your mind. Not a word on your tongue. Not a deed in your hand. That God is not aware of. In fact, before you ever thought it, before you ever said it, before you ever did it, God declared that it would be so. He ordered all the circumstances and all the factors in the world around you and even within you, in your innermost being, in the workings of your soul and in the motions of your mind. He orchestrated it all to make it happen. Proverbs 16, verse 1 says, The preparations of the heart and man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Not just the word that comes out of our mouth, but even the preparations working behind it is from the Lord. That also includes the evil deeds that men and devils do. You meant evil, Joseph said. There was evil in your hearts when you threw me in that pit. But God meant it unto good to save much people alive. God was not standing on the sidelines looking on as Judah and his brothers threw Joseph into the pit. He was not weeping and wailing and crying and wishing that they wouldn't while being helpless to do anything about it. No, he declared it would happen. He declared it would happen in just the way that it would happen because he had a purpose with it and he worked it all out powerfully and mightily with his hand, his almighty hand. But don't misunderstand. We are not fatalists. We believe that God is sovereign over everything, including the actions and inactions of men. But that does not mean that providence can be turned into an excuse to excuse the evil in a man's heart. Now there's something mysterious here. Something that is difficult for us to comprehend intellectually. How this may be, but though God decrees even the evil deeds of men, though God decreed even the evilest of all deeds, the crucifixion of His Son, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that took place, He was sovereign over it. Yet He hates the evil. He's repulsed by what He sees in the hearts of men and He judges it. He cannot be tempted with evil, James says. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Don't you dare. Don't you dare say, as blood is dripping down your fingers, God made me do it. Not so. You know very well where the murder came from. 
And I tell you, if you point the finger at God on Judgment Day, your excuse will die on your lips before His holy and righteous presence. We are not fatalists. And anyone who will use providence to shield himself from the guilt of his own sin understands neither providence nor his own nature. Don't do it. But for the child of God, providence is no excuse. It is an article of his faith. For providence is not only the care of God over all creatures, but it is his care as a father for his children. careth for you. Do you know that? It says it right there in verse 7. He careth for you. Oh, as the Creator God, His care extends far beyond you and me and our personal interests. His attention is expanded over all His works. He cares for the sparrow and their nests. He cares for those funny-looking fish that swim way down deep in the ocean trenches. He cares for the stars. He cares for all things, for if He didn't, they would all collapse back into the nothing. You children, if you think that your dad is busy, a busy person who's always thinking about this or that, always working on his car in the garage, always poring over papers in his office, always going on business trips, always going and doing this and always going and doing that. That's nothing compared to the busyness with which God the Father is occupied at all times upholding and governing the whole world and all that is in it. He cares for all things, but He careth for you. Even as he rides upon the clouds as his chariot and casts down bolts of lightning as his arrows in the storm, even as he scatters frost over the earth, even as he gives light and life and causes the world to continue spinning on its axis, he hasn't forgotten about you. You who believe in him, who know him, he careth for you, he sees you, he knows you. And all the things that are going on around you, all the things that are going on in your life. And He cares for you. He cares for you as a father. He cares for His children. Beloved, do you know that? And it's not just that He cares for you in addition to His care for all of those other things. It's true. He cares for all of those things with all the fullness and good of His care as God Rain and drought, meat and drink, fruitful and barren years. He cares for all of those things too. And yet, we can say, rightly we can say, that God's care of all of those other things is really just an aspect of His care for you and His care for me and His care for His children. It really is. Why does God care for the sparrows? Why does God continue to uphold and govern the world? Why does He cause that the world continues to spin on its, on its axis? Why does He make the stars to shine, the rain to fall, the grass to grow? Why does He do all of those things? 
It's because He cares for you. Nothing shall separate us from His love, the Lord's Day says. Why? Because all things are so in His hand that without His will He cannot so much as move. And what is His will? His will is for the blessing and salvation and glory of the people whom He knows and whom He has loved with an eternal love. So that all the movements of all the creatures and all the great events in the world are arranged in order to fulfill and to realize this deep and everlasting love of God the Father for His children. All the things that He's doing from the rise and fall of kings and emperors and nations to the movings of the anthill in your driveway. As He's doing all of that, His eye is on you. And He cares for you. It's why the Bible says things that seem almost impossibly wild, if not reckless, if you really meditate on them. Like this in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Do you hear that? Or has it just become a phrase to you? A platitude? All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. It's all part of His care for you. Or this word in 1 Corinthians 3, All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. Life, death, the world, things present, things to come, it's all yours. It's all part of the Father's care for His children. Look around outside when you leave church this morning. Look up and see that blue sky. The green grass. Hear the birds chirping. Feel the breeze on your face. It's all for you. Go on into your life this week. Go into your family, into your marriage, into your personal sphere. Go back to that place where there is trouble, where there is pain, where there is suffering. Go to the sick bed. Go to the grave. This too is all part of the Father's care for His children. It is. And He works for us through it all a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, the Word of God tells us. But how can this be? Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, yes, of course, of course, all things work together for my good. Of course, heaven and earth will be bent in order to satisfy my own personal needs. Of course, that's the way it is, because after all, I am the center of the universe. 
The world revolves around me. If you think that way, then you have no idea. If you are not deeply humbled, if you are not saying to yourself this morning, how, how can it be? How is it not arrogance beyond measure for me to think such a thing, much less, much less boldly assert that it's true? How can this be? Why me? I'm just a person. I'm a nobody floating around in this world. I hardly make an impact. I'm here one moment. I'm going to be gone the next. I'm a vapor. And a sinner, no less, whose thoughts and actions are offensive to this very God who upholds and governs the universe. How? How can the Eternal Father care for me this way? If you're not humbled, then you have no idea and you should probably examine your life because you're proud and you don't understand what a tremendous thing it is to have God as your Father. How? How can this be? The answer is this. It's because He loves you in Jesus Christ. Period. You are the object of His deep, abiding, eternal, unconditional covenant love. That's why. He's your Father. He is your Father before you ever knew Him, before you were ever aware of His love. He is your Father before He ever even brought you forth into this world. And He loves you. Why? Why does He love you? Because He does. It's His good pleasure. It's His good pleasure to love you and out of that love to choose you for life. And out of that deep and eternal and abiding, unconditional fatherly love for you, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And beloved, if you are sitting here this morning wondering how can it be that God cares so for me, how can it be that He bends heaven and earth for my well-being, little nobody that I am, how can it be that all things are mine, that all things work together for my good, how can that be? If you're wondering that, here's the deeper question. How can it be that the Father would send His only begotten Son whom He brought forth out of His own being in eternal love? Whom He loves with all the eternal fullness that He has as God and whom, who loves Him back with that same fullness. How could it be that God sent Him into the lowliness of human flesh and then crushed Him in the blackness and death of the cross. How can that be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? 
That's the deeper question, beloved. And yet there is nothing more established for a Christian than that. This is at the heart of our faith. That God the Father sent His Son, His only begotten Son, into our flesh to live among us and to die for us and to rise again. And because the Father delighted in the sacrifice of His Son, it was His will to give to Him all things so that all things would work together for His good, for the good of Christ. And because the Father sees you and He sees me in Him, united to Him as branches in a tree, then the Father will bend heaven and earth. He will ride the storm clouds to your aid to save you. He will stop at nothing. He will spare nothing. He will give people for your sake and men for your life. Beloved, He loves you. And out of that love, He cares for you. Do you know it? Do you believe it? Then you will rest comfortably in His care as the Father for His children. Oh, beloved, that means you will be patient. You will be patient. You will be patient when it happens. The thing that you have been fearing. When it's your house that's blown away by a tornado. When it's your body that is afflicted with disease. When it's your loved one who is suddenly stricken and taken from you. When there is pain. When there is trauma, you will be patient. You must be patient. That doesn't mean that your face has to remain blank and that your eyes have to remain dry or that if you feel the suffering for what it is, the death of your flesh, the influence of the curse of this world so that it makes you cry out in pain so that you groan and travail. It doesn't mean that if you feel that way that somehow that means you're rebelling. No. We are not unfeeling creatures and patience does not mean there is no grief. There is grief. Grief like the Lord Jesus Christ standing by the graveside of his friend, weeping tears openly, expressing sorrow, grief, anger, outrage. But patience means that we know this, even in our tears and even in our pain. He cares for you. And He wouldn't send it. He wouldn't send it. 
Not even that. He wouldn't send it if it did not somehow, some way, work out for your advantage and salvation. If you will rest in the Father's care, beloved, you will be patient and thankful. When your barns are full, when there's plenty of food in the cupboards and in the refrigerator, when you have things like cupboards and refrigerators wherein you can store your food, when you experience success at work, when you get to look around you and see all your children and all your grandchildren healthy and whole and thriving, when you simply get to take one breath and feel in that breath the oxygen flowing into your lungs uninhibited so that there is life in your body, you will be thankful Beloved, you must be thankful. And not just with your lips. Not just with your lips, children. As you say the words as fast as you can, Lord, we thank Thee for this food and drink. Forgive my sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thankful. Truly thankful. What a gift we have been given. If you are here at all, if you are alive, if you are breathing, what a gift. And if you know what love the Father has bestowed on you, what grace really means. Will we ever stop saying thank you? Thank you. Thank you, Father, for my whole life. you rest in the Father's care. If you believe it, you will be thankful. And we could sum this all up with the words of the Apostle. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That hand has your life in it the lives of your children, the whole world. Do you really think you could last a single moment apart from that mighty hand? Cast your care upon Him, beloved. Cast your care upon Him. All of it. Your whole life. Your whole being. Your wife, your husband, your children, your work, everything. You're so worried all the time. You're so anxious all the time. As if heaven and earth and all things in it was not at all times working together for your good. But they are. They are. For you have a Father in heaven. A Father who cares for you so deeply. Believe in Him. Believe in His care. Rest in His care for you, beloved. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we need Thee every hour, every moment. We forget it. We forget it and then we become scared. We are so weak. Help us to see Thy glory, Thy goodness, the depths of Thy love, 
Now, Father, strengthen our faith that we may truly live believing in thy care for us, resting in that care, trusting in that care, being bold in that care. Forgive our sins. Forgive our weakness of faith. We believe, O Lord, help thou our unbelief. And strengthen us. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.